Welcome to another episode of the Weird Era podcast. I am very excited to have my first guest of season four also be our cover artist for volume two of the Weird Era Literary Journal. It is artist and graphic novelist Michael DeForge. Michael DeForge lives in Toronto. He worked as a designer on Adventure Time for six seasons, and his illustrations have been featured in Jacobin, The New York Times, The Believer, The LA Times, and The Walrus. His published books include Ant Colony, Dressing, Big Kids, Brat, Sticks Angelica, Folk Hero, Stunt, Familiar Face, Leaving Richard's Valley, Heaven No Hell, and Birds of Maine. He's written for Essence and Lux Magazine. For listeners who have yet to pick up Birds of Maine, which was one of my favorite books of 2022, we follow a society of birds living on a lunar colony complete with fruitful trees, sophisticated fungal networks, and an enviable socialist order. The universal worm feeds all. There are no weekends, and economics is as fantastical a study as unicorn psychology. No concept of money or wealth plagues the thoughts of these free-minded birds. Instead, there are angsty teens who form bands to show off their best bird song and other youngsters who yearn to become clothing designers even though clothes are only necessary during war the truly honorable professions for most birds are historian and or librarian these birds are free to crush on hot pelicans and live their best lives until a crash-landed human from earth threatens to change everything hi michael thank you for joining us today thanks for having me so yeah, just to kick things off, uh, I'm a big old sci-fi junkie, um, and I think Birds of Maine kind of hit all the right notes for me because it is inherently a science fiction story. Apart from the literal spaceship that crash lands on the colony or the fact that a biospheric colony on the moon even exists for these birds, a certain sci-fi undercurrent seems like something that shows up repeatedly in your work, and I could pull any number of examples from Familiar Face or Heaven No Hell. What is it about science fiction or even spec? fiction as a genre uh, that appeals to you as a visual artist? Uh, in general, I like making artwork that is otherworldly, so science fiction lends itself well to that, that sort of premise. Um, and growing up, a lot of big influences on me um, were science fiction works, like um, Ursula Le Guin, I think like her influence is very present in a lot of the comics I draw, even the non-science fiction ones. Um, but uh, Samuel Delaney, Joanna Russ, um, at different points in my life, um, played uh, uh, influenced my work. And then, yeah, as a kid, like I just watched a lot of Star Trek, and I think aspects of Star Trek are certainly like kind of present in Birds of Maine. The the utopian aspects of Star Trek uh, show up there. I was going to ask: Is working through the lens of that genre something that happens naturally? Is it a concerted effort? And at the end of it, I, I think I really am asking specifically about the way you create utopic spaces for your characters to exist. What appeals to you in creating different versions of utopic worlds that may or may not deliver their ultimate promises? Uh, I think really early on in my career, I did a lot of artwork that was super focused on disaster and dystopia and calamity. And um, I still do work like about that that is like dystopian um familiar face was certainly that but at some point um i was getting a bit frustrated only working on dystopia i think especially right now 
um, it's very clear to most people that things are, are horrible and it doesn't really feel the most productive to be like showing that to the world. You know, I don't, I don't think I'm really like pulling the scales over anyone's eyes at this point anymore. As most people recognize everything's horrible, the people have really different ideas as to why things are horrible. But, um, uh, yeah, so I, I realized that like maybe I, a thing I could do is try to work out ways to build something better. And like even just kind of the process of articulating that in my own head helped solidify a lot of my, my politics, I'd say. Are there other kind of ideals or foundational elements to science fiction that you would say also come up in your work? I feel like those are the two big ones. Um, like the, I think a lot of like, other kind of science fiction staple things about like the ethics of certain technology or whatever. Like I'm actually not super interested in. Um, I do I do think about the ideologies behind technologies, and that's something that plays into my work. Jumping off of that, let's talk uh, mycelial networks. Again, for our listeners who might not have had a chance to read Birds of Maine yet, the vast communication structure on this lunar colony is via this mycelial network that also works as a kind of searchable internet. I'm curious about your inspiration behind this idea. I think we are kind of collectively all learning about more about this subject and this process and how complex mycelial networks are like this thing that have always existed and they're basically the engine that keeps the planet alive. Um, but could you just expand a bit on how it's used by the birds in Birds of Maine and what you think the future of this type of technology could look like in our own society? That might be a big question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, yeah, I think with that, uh, like many other people, uh, I got like mushroom pilled when mushroom at the end of the world came out and I read it and enjoyed it a great deal. Um, and yeah, like I just offhandedly um, read some piece about the way information gets communicated through fungal networks and theorizing about mushroom computers. And I thought that would be like just a really fun thing to, to riff off of. Um, and the idea of like, I think like mushrooms or fungus, even like more broadly, uh, is a really potent image, this thing that is like both delicate, but also very vast and um, expansive uh, is, is like just both a potent image and a potent metaphor. Uh, in wanted to write about technology, you know, like I, I, I have written a lot of work that is very critical of, of um, technology, but uh, I did want to try to imagine what technology would look like if it developed on a different history uh, so much of like computing and internet um, we talk about like all of the the squandered potential of the internet a lot I think people of like my generation especially um, taught, like, reminisce about the old internet but really when you look at the history of the internet a lot of the it was built on like this already like flawed architecture you know like the bunch of libertarians tied up with the military industrial complex um so i wanted to imagine what it would look like if 
technology was developed along different like ideals and ideologies. And that was a lot of what I was trying to do with the fungal internet and all the other different types of internet and the bird technology where it was technology that wasn't developing in a vacuum. It was still um, in dialogue with human technology and responsive to human technology in a lot of ways, but just has this entirely different arc. Do you think the birds have it right in Birds of Maine? Is that is nature the future of technology? Uh, I think so. I think with the birds is that it's not that they have everything 100% right. Um, like utopia isn't just something you hit. It, it's like uh, something you have to constantly like strive for and be vigilant in, in maintaining and like re-examining what is like working and what isn't all the time as conditions might change. So I like to think that um, uh, bird society isn't like totally fixed in the book. Like it might look different, but um, like even though it is mostly like a utopia, um, there's like, you know, I mean, the, the Le Guin thing is like ambiguous utopia a little bit. And I always, I always like that where it's not like it's some fixed point. Um, but I do think that figuring out, um, I do think like the the big challenge will be readdressing our relationship with nature. Like, and there's like a lot of different ways to do that. But uh, a thing I wanted to talk about in Birds of Maine is to not think of technology and nature as being these two separate entities because they're not here either. We think of them as two separate entities, but for better or worse, and mostly worse, uh, technology is constantly in dialogue with nature. Just um, right now, it's in a mostly harmful way, but uh, they're not like two discrete things. And it shows up even the way we think of like nature conservation as like nature being this thing that is like shunted off over there to either be extracted from or preserved or whatever it might be. But um, it's not over there. It's like in a city, it's all around us. Um, and it's uh, we're just interacting with it in a, a, a yeah, way that's yet to become yeah. this symbiotic super highway that the birds have created, yes. right? Yeah, exactly. I wanted to talk a bit more about how you managed to bring up the theme of information exchange in your work. You know, we could easily go back to the mycelial network, um, but I'm also thinking of familiar face as a whole with its bureaucratic networks, um, the flyering that happens in Richards Valley as a means of communication, uh, the ant pheromones and ant colony. It's it's just this theme that I notice is really prevalent in your work. So I want to ask a, a, maybe a funny question and then a more serious question. Um, what is your preferred method of communication and what is your least favorite method? Uh, my least favorite is definitely email. I think anyone who has either known me as a friend or known me professionally can attest that I am horrible at uh, getting back to anyone's email. Um, and preferred might be, I mean, you brought up the posters in Richards Valley, but it might be the poster, um, which I realize in a lot of ways is like a a dying art, or at least not, it's less useful than it used to be, um, as there are more efficient ways of getting information out of there. But uh, I'm still very attached to the, the poster, whether it's a gig poster, or a political poster, or something like more esoteric or, or confusing. So why now do you think this comes up often as a theme in your work? Just again, this theme of information exchange? 
Uh, I think as a cartoonist, some of the, the stuff you mentioned, it's just really ripe to, to play with. Like a lot of what I liked in the bird internet was um, just trying to figure out different ways to visualize um, information. Uh, in Big Kids, I did a lot of the same way, uh, the same thing. Because, um, yeah, cartooning is all about communicating, but it like within cartooning, there's all these like funny abstractions you do. Like why does a big bead of sweat mean something in an American comic versus a Japanese comic? Why does a big puff of smoke mean a fight scene? You know, all these things. So I like playing with that. Um, but uh, yeah, I do find it really like an, an interesting thing to think about and, and write about. Um, I think with both like the, the gig posters in Richard's Valley and the way information gets exchanged in Birds of Maine, I try to highlight the fact that the messages kind of rot and decay over time, that the, the flyers, they get papered over or the information becomes more obscure as time passes and the, the meaning gets more confused or gets ripped up. Um, it's like a part of visual noise. And yeah, with the, the information networks in Birds of Maine, I, I talk a bit about how it eventually rots, which is not necessarily not necessarily a default uh, a defect. It's like a, can be an asset to the the fact that information doesn't have to be permanent. So apart from the illustrations and the design, um, the voice of Michael DeForge as a writer is also really well-founded at this point in your career as a graphic novelist. There's this strong millennial ennui vibe that comes along with a lot of your characters, um, especially in Birds of Maine. You know, Ginny and her friends are unsure of what they want to do with their lives. Nobody's really settling down the way they should. Everybody wants to date everybody else. I loved everyone's obsession with James the Hot Pelican when you're trying to find proper voices for your characters how much of your voice and personal line of thought enter into it or do you kind of actively try to separate yourself from these characters uh i think i definitely have a really strong voice when there is like narration in my comics where it tends to be this like very wordy voice and a very deadpan way of writing and um like familiar face or stunt. A lot of my books have that. And then when it's books without narration, uh, like it's more reliant on dialogue. I do hope that the characters speak a bit more distinctly for me, where it's still clearly me writing them. Like I, I have a lot of just things I fall back on. I realize that so many of my books have characters just delivering monologues all the time. Like they're like on a stage, but, uh, yeah, there are certain characters that, like, uh, I hope don't speak like me. And they tend to be the kind of, like, my favorite characters to write, actually. Like, um, Caroline the Frog, the the protagonist in Brat, the protagonist uh, in Sticks, Ange Sticks Angelica, the protagonist of Sticks Angelica. Um, they tend to be voices that are very different from mine. So they actually become, like, more distinct in my head than characters that, like, do share a lot of my like hangups like like Ginny or something I like don't think of like super different from me but um right yeah do you have a favorite character that you've written uh it is probably Caroline Frog um <laughs> she is yeah she was like very fun to write um and part of writing her that way was 
I felt a bit egged on because I was serializing that comic on Instagram at first. And okay, right. she was originally just like a really small character. Like I didn't really intend much for her. And um, her role in the early strips was she she basically like narcs on the, the lead characters. <laughs> and I read the comment section for that week of strips and everyone was like, I hate this fucking frog or like this asshole. <laughs> and I thought it was so funny that like, this really throwaway drawing I put in evoked such a strong reaction. Um, and I felt kind of like I should make it a challenge that I not only make this small character that was originally just like an afterthought um, a lead character, but I wanted to like make everybody like her um, without fundamentally like changing. Like I think by the end of the book, like she goes on a little arc, but she is still pretty disagreeable for a lot of it, you know, still pretty cranky. Um, but it's like, I want, I wanted people to come around to the frog. And I think a lot of people did. I think she became like a, one of the more beloved characters in that story. Oh yeah. I mean, I think Caroline Frog is absolutely one of my favorite characters. She's just pissed. Yes. <laughs> she's just pissed at the world. She's pissed that she's not getting what she deserves and what she wants. And she's uh, not afraid to vocalize it. Which I guess is the thing that's unlike <laughs> unlike me. <laughs> so, I mean, funny enough, like now we are talking about leaving Richards Valley again. I, I, and I asked the last question through the lens of Birds of Maine. But I do kind of want to talk about leaving Richards Valley on this subject. Just because there is a bit more of an activist nature to the story and to the characters. It seems like you also do a lot of pro bono activist work with your art. So I'm wondering if that story was kind of directly pulled from your own experience in this field. What was interesting with that is that like it was not super intentional that it worked out that way. What happened with that comic was like doing it daily and setting it in Toronto meant that I couldn't help but respond to things that were happening in Toronto as I was drawing it, you know? Like, I think my politics become clear in my comics just no matter what, because um, it, it would be a hard thing to hide when writing about some of the things I'm trying to write about. But um, with that one, I think I, I initially wanted it to be mostly about a cult and surviving a cult when I started it. And really, like, I don't actually think that was the, the crux of the narrative by the end of it, because when I started writing about what it was like for them just surviving in Toronto day to day, I was writing about a real Toronto and a real and Toronto, like, like most cities, um, is going through all of these waves of displacement and gentrification. And th those ideas just worked their, their way into the work, I think, pretty organically, but it was um, an accident that it worked out that way. You basically answered my next question, which was, I'm actually curious about what kind of events were happening in Toronto at the time, but I, I, I did assume it was going to be more about the housing crisis than anything else. Because like you said, it kind of starts with, you, you think you're walking into this story that's going to be all about cults and cult survival, and then it ends up literally being about all of these characters and all these animals that are displaced kind of I mean jumping off that again what's the difference do, is there a, a cognizant change when you're writing human characters and when you're writing animal characters a little bit I do like the joke of animals that mostly talk like animals but then or oh, sorry animals that mostly talk like human beings but then end up d doing things that 
are illegible to human beings. Like just doing something like very animal and animalistic. Um, like I just think that's like a funny joke. So um, I I do think like I write them a little differently, but it's mostly for like gags. I think I'm like I was very influenced by Bloom County as a kid, um, the Berkeley Breathe Strip, which is funny because it's like before my time technically. Like all of the the references it's making are like um, squarely mid '80s, which was like right before I was born. And I was born in like 1987, so like I don't get at the time I didn't get like jokes about Kitty Dukakis or whatever. But um, uh, I I really found it funny like these communities of animals and humans cohabitating together, and and that was frequently a joke is that like Opus is a penguin that like is in human relationships and is mostly talking like a human but then sometimes we'll do something that only a penguin would do and that would really be confusing to the humans around him we're jumping all around here we're kind of exploring uh your body of work uh mostly recent ones like i in november i think i read most of your published work just because it was super busy at the bookstore and on a saturday i like to pick up a graphic novel and just go through it and I just like hit a bunch of them all at once from you. I loved Heaven No Hell. I love a short story collection. Um, graphic novels also kind of lend themselves to the form of comic strips, of um, serial kind of stories. Like I said, kind of Heaven No Hell is very much a short story collection. Birds of Maine has some of that like panel aspect, but it is a, a story as a whole. Um, what do you find if there is any difference between kind of making panels, like you said, in Leaving Richard's Valley or making kind of a daily panel or a daily comic? What's the difference between that and actually setting out to complete a full scale book? It took me a while to really just like sit down and bang out a book because, um, yeah, I find it easier to think of art in small doses. I think even the way I consume art, like I prefer kind of like I in general I prefer short stories or poetry to like a reading a novel um yeah I was working on short stories for um a while before I was actually able to focus on a whole book and the only way I was able to do that was by serializing it when I did Ant Colony um I'd had a few false starts for a graphic novel which I think is like pretty common like for not just cartoonists, but, you know, anyone, <laughs> you know, you do, everyone's first novel is un uncompleted. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I found I could only wrap my head around it once I started breaking it down into, like, a weekly schedule where I only had to think of it one story beat at a time or, like, one strip at a time versus a, a whole narrative. And then, you know, eventually I was able to, like, actually do a graphic novel that was just a graphic novel. It wasn't a serial beforehand or a collection of short stories that added up to something else. It was like a straight on graphic novel, but uh, uh, I still find that more difficult to do than, um, yeah, than either the serial or the short story. I'm working on one now and I'm for, I forget how frustrating it can be to just, <laughs> <laughs> just to map out everything. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't even map out. I think that's probably the part of the problem is that I don't map things out very much. I just like take it on. So if I don't give myself like um, any parameters, 
it can feel really daunting. And a strip, a serialized strip has those parameters. A short story has those parameters where you know it can't exceed a certain length. Um, or a strip, it's like, yeah, it's going to be nine panels this week. Whatever I have to do, it has to be nine panels long. Uh, and that's the package. And then I guess I'm going to ask like a purely selfishly weird era question. And, and it kind of ties into all of this because we've obviously talked about the approach um, for, you know, a, a daily strip, a, a full-blown graphic novel. But you also famously, infamously, I don't know, famously, we'll go with famously, um, designed the cover for the uh, second volume of the Weird Era Literary Journal. Um, what was your approach for that design? And I guess I can also ask in a broader sense, what is your approach when you're designing just like a gig poster or, or a book cover or something for an article? Uh, it depends a little bit. Like with Weird Era, it was kind of um, the ideal conditions to draw something in because I had a good jumping off point um, on the first issue and kind of knowing what it was about. Um, and uh, knowing it wasn't going to be like um, annoyingly art directed, <laughs> I guess, you know, like <laughs> I've... You know, I, I don't mind the, the art direction process in a lot of cases where, but like I've had the nightmare gig where you're like, you're constantly going back and, and revising something for a, a client you don't care about, which is not the case with Weird Era. It was like something that I was you know, very happy to do. Um, so yeah, the, the, the process is different. That, that was closer to the way I might do a gig poster where like, usually if I do a gig poster, um, it is frequently for like someone gig posters don't pay enough to do a lot of them for like people you don't like kind of so it's usually if i do a gig poster <laughs> it's like i i already want to do it um so it's more akin to that where it's just like trying to capture a vibe and trusting that like um knowing that the other person has my trust uh, or uh, trust me enough to like kind of to go off on a limb a little bit. Um, but yeah, then for editorial illustration, you know, I've run the gamut of types of jobs, but um, that does tend to be more prescriptive where it is like you're working in a, a narrower set of parameters and um, can expect to, to be heavily art directed in some cases. How, how are you as an artist when somebody gives you harsh parameters? Do you, I, I mean, like, that's probably a dumb question. I feel like, a lot of artists would say, oh, I hate it. Um, but I, like, I'm somebody who, who, who thrives with, with, with structure and given structure and having kind of a free-for-all isn't always the thing that I need. Um, so, yeah, I'm just curious about how you feel about that. Uh, it really depends because there are some cases where, uh, yeah, I do like it. And um, art directors who are very prescriptive but who are, like, a pleasure to work for because they have a clear idea in mind – and ideally it is for like a, a project that I don't find like morally reprehensible in some way or, you know, like, like, and that actually is like great because like, I, I don't mind being just like a, a gun for hire in those cases. So it's like, can, can be a real pleasure where someone has a vision in mind, you don't mind collaborating with them. You bang it out. Like, I like doing that. Um, it can be challenging, but challenging in like fun and interesting ways. Um, and then, yeah, like the, there are the nightmare clients who are 
giving you like 1 million little revisions. It sometimes seems like they're only giving you revisions because they get paid more to like take meetings and stuff. <laughs> I get to bill by the right. hour or whatever, some <laughs> or ad agency or whatever it might be. So like I've, I've kind of had the whole menu of like really great collaborations with art directors and then like really just horrible soul destroying ones. Um, and I worked in animation. Like that was a very prescriptive gig. Um, I had extremely tight parameters. I had to draw to a pre-existing style and I felt valued as a, as a artist and an art worker and my voice like felt present and they wanted my voice and, and a lot of that stuff, but it was way more prescriptive than like even most commercial illustration gigs. But that was a case where um, the animators I was collaborating with, like I, I trusted them, they trusted me and it could be grueling at times. Like it wasn't like always just joyful to work on, but um, like I did, I did like that structure um, for the years I was on it in that specific case. I don't think that would be the case for every anime. It's not the case for every animation project, but on Adventure Time, like, uh, yeah, I, I, I like doing that. And um, I learned a lot about just um, like technical aspects of drawing from doing that, that I wouldn't have if I was just, if I was not doing that, I guess, you know. Um, I, and I mean, like, specifically, we, we are talking about Adventure Time. How did years working in television for that show kind of influence your graphic novels later on? Uh, the big thing is that drawing for animation and specifically, like, some of the people I was working under, like, the, the artists I was getting feedback from tended to be either Adam Muto, Andy Restaino, Matt Forsyth, or Pendleton Ward, who are all extremely, extremely skilled cartoonists and they taught me um how to use like two lines to draw something when i was using like 13 lines before so i think it made me like just you know if the the role of my, on the job it taught me to be a more efficient cartoonist but i think overall it taught me to be a more elegant cartoonist or be um just more confident with like trying to do more with less um but then in terms of the influence it had on my comics i think because that not all animation is like this but a, an animated show like that is rooted in like time and space in a specific way you know like behold it, it, characters have to walk in a room and interact in a room in a way that makes sense everything is like timed very specifically because um it it has a time slot it has to fill and hit all these story beats it's like beholden to the schedule and i i think my comics pushed further and further away from that because I was working on the show in this one medium. Um, and I wanted to do things in comics that would be impossible to do in animation. I like became interested in that where you do get to push time and space in ways that like don't make physical sense or like uh, or don't have to be as literal as a show like Adventure Time. Um, so yeah, I think like like it it pushed the two further away from me in a, in a way that I like. What are some of your favorite cartoons to watch? Because I'm going to just go out on a total limb and say you probably like to watch cartoons. <laughs> uh yeah, I do. There's I should keep up better with like what's actually on TV than I do. Um but uh my my favorite animated movie is um son of the white mare which a few years ago got like remastered um and uh 
yeah, the the director died like two years ago, but his work in general has sort of been like going around. But Son of the White Mare is just like so beautiful um, and uses all these like color fields in really beautiful ways, makes all these like very like odd choices that you, you wouldn't see. I feel like there's a lot of, there's like these animated movies that I'm interested in animation where you can like see traditions that didn't, that don't tend to exist anymore. You know, like a lot of like, soviet block animation you don't necessarily see those aesthetics show up but um there's even this like um australian movie grendel 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 that's um very beautiful and the artwork in it is like super lumpy and and i just think about it a lot because there's not much lumpiness in modern animation you know like kind of like cruddy looking characters like characters have to be cute or sleek are you talking like are we going like full squid billy style crumpy clumpy i'm thinking more like um like bc you know <laughs> or like wizard of Vin, okay. BC, or like okay, um, okay okay you know like sorrel cartoons or something just like kind of right. like frumpy like a frumpy ugly guy like you just don't that's like not gonna show up in a in a dreamworks animation so um i like work that's that's frumpy maybe you say frumpy, but I would, I, I mean, I, and maybe this is just a totally different question in general, um, because I do think you have this really kind of distinct style of animation. And I think this actually is a different question. Ginny, the bird in Birds of Maine, is a star, and she's supposed to be a cardinal, you know? Like, so it's kind of this marriage that I that I really, really like in your work. What would you say your biggest or your earliest influences are uh, when it comes to creating your own personal style? Um, that's a tough one because I feel like they just, you know, influences in your life just kind of like keep piling on to each other, you know, until, um, until you die. But, uh, uh, I do, <laughs> I do think of, um, this is a, a, a story I cite a lot, but, um, Sari Pop, who are now, um, like fine artists who do video work and installations and stuff, but I used to know them only through gig posters um, when I was a teenager. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Ottawa, and I would sometimes go to shows in Montreal, but their posters were all over Montreal, and I'd see them in Ottawa too. And it wasn't really like anything I'd seen before. There were alternative comics I'd read, like I'd read Seth and Chester Brown at that point, but it looked really different from that. You know, it didn't look like Dan Klaus or, or anyone like that. And there was... You know, other like the visual language of some of the other music I was into, like crust punk or hardcore, it seemed related to that, but was still super different from it. Like these fairly loud, bold colors. And I sent them um, an email as like I, I would have been 14 years old, I think, just saying like, hey, like what artists should I like? You know, <laughs> like this really dorky <laughs> email. And um really generously they wrote back with uh, a big list of like cartoonists and designers and other poster artists they gave me lists of cuban poster artists i would like um, children's book illustrators they gave me saul steinberg they gave me julie Doucet, linda berry and like fort thunder they talked about like matt brinkman and brian chippendale and it kind of became like the rosetta stone for what my personality <laughs> would end up being in the years after so i think of that as being like this very formative thing this like i definitely don't have the email like the email belongs to some hotmail that i'm sure is 
been inactive for like 20 years or something. But um, uh, I think of that email as like being the formative one for me. I love that. All right. I mean, listen, we're pretty much good. That's all I had for you today. I guess if I was going to ask one final question to go out on, um, which I do like to ask it, even though I know it's kind of corny and not everybody does. uh, But what are you working on next? What are we what are we getting from uh, Michael DeForge in the near future? Uh, Right now, I'm doing a sci fi horror comic. And shut up. Like, (laughs) why didn't we open the interview with this question? Well, it's one where the I haven't figured out a good way to pitch the premise yet. So uh, (laughs) I uh, so I'll, I'll, you know, maybe next time we talk, I'll have a better elevator pitch than all I I can say about it is it is a sci fi horror comic. But um, that's what I've been working on right now. I mean, consider me waiting with bated breath for more information on this one, for sure. Hopefully I'll be finished it sooner rather than later. Oh, well, thank you so much, Michael. Uh, This was great. It was lovely to talk to you. I'm happy that you could come on. I'm happy that we could have our cover artist from Weird Era tie in and we could talk about some of your books and, and your art and your creative influences. It always interests me. And like I said, I just after my uh, after my Michael DeForge deluge of uh, of reading, I just I knew I wanted to talk to you. And thank you. Thank you again. Oh, thank you. Yeah, these were great. This was great. Yeah. <laughs> thank you.